0: This is a conversation with Max Munt. Max is the VP of Business Development for Insempra, a biomaterials startup that is unleashing nature to grow matter with atomic precision. He is also a part-time partner for Amino Collective, a European seed stage bio venture fund. Earlier, Max was a biotech founder and freelance consultant and completed his PhD in synthetic biology at the Max Planck Institute for Terrestrial Microbiology. Max is a rare scientist operator who thinks big about the future, and our chat was a lot of fun. In this conversation, we cover why Max thinks biology would lead to a revolution of matter and self-improving biodevices, in Sempera's novel approach to commercialize biomaterials, their beachhead markets, being asset-light with contract manufacturers, and his venture partner work at Amino Collective. I'm Song Xu, and this is Materially Better. This podcast is a series of conversations about new performance materials and their applications. I believe that new materials will play a big role in unlocking innovation and solving the problems that we face today. And this podcast helps surface insights and learnings from the frontier. And now here's Max Munt. What is Insempra and what is your role there?
1: Insempra is a biomanufacturing company almost two years old now and it's a business-to-business product company so what we want to do is like really create physical matter that we then sell to other businesses that then sell into cosmetics market, into apparel and also some niche markets in food and feed my role at in is i'm basically the guy in charge of tech scouting we have this approach that we don't want to reinvent the wheel simply because there's a whole lot of amazing technology already out there at a sufficiently high readiness level that we can pick it up, scale it, find the right markets for it, have it produced, and then again, let it be to B. That means I'm having a lot of coffees with different <laughs> professors, with people from early stage companies, with people from within business units of established companies, trying to scope out if and how we could collaborate. There's
0: a lot to dive into there and I'm really excited to do that. But first, what led to your interest in synthetic biology and biomanufacturing?
1: I was always curious about nature, really, based on my family background. I think my parents and their friends are all somewhat hippies. Conservation was always a big thing. So as a small kid, I wrote pamphlets with my brother, distributed them downtown to make people stop Eating burgers from big burger chains because because that was an issue with deforestation to have, to have all of the gun everything so there was always something that I was interested in nature and how it can be protected and I also have somewhat of a creative soul and was interested in music and acting and whatnot somehow synthetic biology brought these two together I had a very straightforward biology education I would say. I mean, what's called molecular biotechnology, so somewhat specialized, but that was somewhat dull. And then over time I found, hey, this is actually more like a programming language and something that we can work with and we can get creative. We can start with a functionality that we have in mind and then figure out how can we work with cells to turn that into an actual real world thing.
0: What motivated you to build and help build
1: startups? Yeah, I think there's no clear path as of now really during my phd i which i did at a max Planck institute that is very much devoted to fundamental research so the application is not really a thing that that they're after but then here's synthetic biology which is basically looking at biology wearing an engineer's hat so it's applied per se and there was some discrepancy there so I was a little bit frustrated with that, that there wasn't enough of a push towards application. I started, co-founded a local startup community, got interested into the startup space because another thing that I realized was there's no bio industry that I could apply to after my PhD because it's just such a nascent field. That was, what now, five years ago or something. Um, so it was obvious to me that I had to create that job myself, basically. So that's why I thought, okay, there's a certain necessity to build a company. And then I got into that space, worked a little bit at VC fund, and then went through the Entrepreneur First accelerator program, which is tailored towards the uh, academics who never really built anything. <laughs> through that, I co-founded my first company, and then slowly. Also, did some pro bono work for different funds, started to give feedback on pitch decks and so on. Yeah.
0: I want to talk about in, for in a sec, but what excites you about the promise of biomaterial?
1: Jason Kelly, Ginkgo CEO and Randy Redberg, the founder of the iGEM competition, which is for many students, the first touch point with synthetic biology, say that there's going to be another industrial revolution and it will be a biological one. And I believe that. That will be a revolution of matter, of the physical substance that surrounds us, which to some extent sounds super old school because we have everything um, all made through chemical processes and whatnot. So why would we even need something new, right? Over the past decade, we all got to understand that we simply cannot afford to create the physical world through these non-sustainable means, really. And here comes biology, which is incredible. It's just so resource efficient. There are no endpoints. It reuses everything and makes something from nothing, really. And I think we are still far away from that, but we can certainly learn from nature. And that's what we're doing already. Once we understand, let's say, 5% of what's going on in nature, maybe we reach that point where we can also just add properties that we can only dream of now. And I find that super exciting. So for me, biology and the the biomaterials, yeah, at the brink of being able to use a new technology that is just superior to everything that we have invented. A
0: revolution of matter is a great way to frame it. Can you talk a bit more about what biology can do that's novel, that's different, that's better, and how that ties into the promise?
1: I think what biology has proven is that it can adapt and fit into every possible ecological niche. And that's the proven process, (laughs) multi-billion year process, basically. The inherent force of nature, which is evolution, is just so good at this. At the same time, being able of always being fit for purpose, as we would call it in the productization process, I would say, but also just super resource efficient. So it it brings everything, really, that would also status our needs in a capitalist society, basically. And the cool thing will be, basically, watching these concepts merge, this conservation mindset and nature is holy and everything with the high-tech, deep-tech, mindset of the scientists and the bio entrepreneurs and see them realize that hey we actually all want the same thing i think once these forces basically join there's not much that can stop this biorevolution so i'm excited about it in terms of what we can do we can not control biology but we can certainly nudge it and get a sense of what other functionalities are in there that we didn't even think about and just Stuff that the chemistry could never do, for example. So that's going to be pretty cool. But again, I feel like we're where computer science was in the 1950s. A lot of that stuff is just still below the radar, but it's going to be good.
0: Yeah. And computer science in the 1950s, of course, massive S-curves ahead, Moore's law ahead for many decades. Can you talk a little about the origin story for Insempra and what led you to join?
1: Sure, absolutely. So Insempra was founded by our CEO, Jens Klein, and he was already a household name in the scene, I would say. He was the CEO of Amstil, who you also referenced in in your blog article. And you also pointed out, I think, that it's weird that this company is actually quite unknown and people are more familiar with, with the Japanese and American competitors. But if I remember correctly, Amstil, those guys were the first ones to really scale the production of biosynthetic spider protein from bacteria to industrial scale. And then I think what Jens there brought to the table, what made him also such an interesting person to talk to, was that he then applied a very commercial mindset to this one substance, basically, a bag of white powder that is this protein. And Jens started to collaborate with different industries all over the place and started selling this into industries that you would never even think of, basically. Most successfully in the cosmetic space, so this protein has great properties for shampoos and creams and so on. And that was a big success story, at least within the Symbio bubble in Germany. I think that he wanted to do something similar, but on a broader technological basis and really keeping this hardcore focus on markets and customers. I got to know him. We went to the same event, basically, and one day when I was already on my way out from my own company, when we had pivoted away from a deep tech approach that I, yeah, I was in Munich and had coffee with him, and he said, hey, I'm doing something new. I need someone with a tech background to help me select what's the good stuff that we can put forward there and scale as fast as possible. Then I... Started as a consultant, basically. I did a bit of freelancing. And during those months, I developed the tech acquisition strategy for Ensempra. Then it was called Origin Bio. And that very quickly just turned into a full-time job. And then I became the first hire.
0: So you were the first overall hire?
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. For half a year, it was Jens and me. (laughs) Just trying to figure out where to find some office space and things like that. Just the regular scrambling that you have in the early days of a company, which was interesting to see because my previous company, which was, of course, also in a similar space, was much less well-funded, I would say. So when I joined in Sempra, they basically already had money in the bank and some issues remain the same, and that is lab infrastructure, for example. I
0: appreciate you shouting out the blog posts. One thing I will say about AIM silk is I don't think a lot of folks have followed it that closely. So... Even just looking at press releases, mm. basically every single AM Silk press release ever, features in media. I got a decent picture of what AM Silk had done. And like you said, super under the radar, but super impressive execution. Mm. I think what you're pointing yeah. to and what I was sensing was that Jan's had a, a good deal to do with that. And I think they've sold their because it's Medics business since then, right? to so Gavardian, so kudos there. On in Sempro, AM Silk was based in Munich. You said you had coffee with J- J- Jans in Munich. So what made you guys choose Berlin in the
1: end? Oh, no. The company is headquartered in Munich. We're actually neighbors of AM Silk, just because it flocked to the hotspots where you have the infrastructure and that unfortunately, at least in Germany, there are not too many spaces. And certainly for a biomanufacturing company, Munich is a very good spot to be in. Berlin really was was more of a private decision to some extent. I didn't necessarily want to move. I studied at Technical University of Munich, so I knew the place already. And there are interesting things happening in Berlin as well. There's Cambrium, which is a biomanufacturing company. There's Formo. They make biosynthetic cheese. And of course, it's the center of German politics. So if you have someone there... He or she can also go to some parliament events and uh, talk to some members of parliament and talk up the entire space, basically. So this is also something that I do occasionally, which is nice because they always have good food. But uh, currently we are two people in Berlin, or I should say, I just recently re- relocated to Oxford. So me now in the UK, it's my colleague in Berlin and the rest of the team, including all of the operations and the labs are in Munich.
0: I should have checked LinkedIn. That makes a ton of no sense. Words. How does Incentra partner with the startups, uh, the spin-outs that, that they have IP with? Because it's such a fascinating and almost unique model from what I've seen, at least.
1: So early on, we thought we could break it down into one model in which we work with, with startups. I should also say that this is part of what we do. We also collaborate with established businesses. And a big part of our work is also collaborating with academic partners, groups that, that are on the verge of building something cool that maybe requires another year of funding or so until it has a technology readiness level reach, that it's something that we can then pick up and further develop uh, in-house. But yeah, oh man, it's just a multitude of ways really, and it depends so much on the partner. I think what we often see is, People can be absolutely brilliant. They have very solid science, got it to a level where stuff works at lab scale, be it a specific value chemical that they can produce through a sustainable microbiological way. Or they maybe have an interesting horizontal process that would just speed up biomanufacturing or make it cheaper. But often this is where they start to struggle. A lot of them are eager to scale it up to industrial, industrial measures and to also commercialize it and these are often gaps that we see so neither the upscaling experience nor the commercial expertise in specific markets is there and so the, this is typically where we come in and we have the people who can literally just say hey work with us because i've done it before It's basically a strong pitch for many, and we have a management team, really, with people with decades of experience in the cosmetic space, in the food space. So our promise is basically, we know where you are, and we can pick you up there and really accelerate the process. Of course, there's some benefit sharing involved. Ideally, in the long run, we have full ownership of these subsidiaries, but that also comes with benefits. So
0: you've already got some partners signed up and obviously they seem to see those benefits. I wanted to talk about a couple of those in a bit more detail. So carboxyl, you acquired, right? That's everyone that was at a couple of schools now, part of Insempera. And then Salina, you've made a strategic investment into what was compelling in both of those cases for Insempera to commit to those relationships.
1: Early last year, we got interested in lipids. For many reasons, they are just basically just long carbon chains that store a lot of energy, chemical energy, and they are cool because they can be a solid replacement for mineral oil-based and NAFTA-based stuff, which we all know is something that we shouldn't be using anymore. But also the whole palm oil topic got more and more attention and then looked into this. Turns out palm oil is not a great solution, but it's the best that we have at the moment, really. Switching everything to rapeseed oil or sunflower oil would only make things worse. It was clear that lipids are interesting. Here it was more a question of who's actually doing that. And now I could probably name five other companies that are doing this. Two years ago, we weren't really sure about that. I talked about this with friends in the scene and that was all before our proper tech scouting channel and process was established. And then a friend of mine told me, hey, I talked to this guy. They did this spin out from Columbia University in New York, and they did it probably too early. I think it was 2016 when Shash, Tim and Mel started Carbocycle. And then they had to go their own way because they couldn't really get the traction at that point, I think, because it was too early. And then I talked to them and yeah, we realized that we're completely mission aligned and what they needed was a lab, some cash and these upscaling and market experts basically. Then we made it work. We brought them all to Munich and now we're scaling a process where we can basically use second generation feedstocks and side streams, waste streams to make high quality oils and fats that are indistinguishable from different plants or plant oils and even some animal fats. So that was a very organic process, I think, in which we could integrate that technology into Insempra. The other example, Fulina, that was really more of a traditional financing round, I would say. So here Insempra really was in VC mode, <laughs> I want to say. And yeah, we started working with the team very early on. So that is a spin out from Imperial College. We gave a lot of input on different processes, how to make sure they are very well set up once they are through the whole licensing process with the college and gave input on product development, because obviously that is something where Jens also has a lot of experience in this whole space. What they do is they make structural proteins that can be turned into fibers and they're also prototyping already here we are super operationally involved investor i would say and it sort of demonstrates the different models that we have and again it just really depends on what the partner needs and then we see if we can cater to that i also talk to a lot of early stage startups that we cannot really help because they have super strong founders who say i want to figure out the upscaling problem and I want to figure out where to sell this stuff to and I can get the money from somewhere else basically and that's also fair we realized that quite early I would say in our conversations and then we can be like hey this is awesome if you need anything happy to connect you but then it's simply not an Insempra case
0: I'm curious for Insempra why this model then
1: initially we said okay there's just so much good innovation that doesn't make it to this startup or spin out stage in European universities and academic institutions mainly. I think in the US the picture is a little bit different. I think postdocs often have that idea in mind that if they find something cool, they're gonna kind of build a company on the back of that. It's not really the mindset that we have here. So it, that's a huge resource to tap into. That was the one thing. I was like, okay, we have so much good stuff going on because I Read a lot of the, the academic developments and so on. And the, se- the second thing was the belly of death. So, once stuff is a little bit more evolved in biomanufacturing, you start to scale, then it doesn't really work in the first iteration. And you would actually have to go back, whatever, change the strain that you use to produce your stuff, or pick another strain from your shortlist, and then go back into pilot scale. But it's just incredibly expensive. And right now, the, the, our financing system isn't really set up to allow for iteration in at that stage of the product development. So we saw two things here that could be improved to build or develop new bio-based products. And then... Of course, these innovations are sometimes tied into a university or a startup or whatnot. And that's why we had to go broad with our models to make sure we can offer all of them something and see a mutual benefit. Yeah.
0: What would you say are either the potential performance benefits today or even looking forward?
1: The drop-in chemicals have their appeal because it's easier to explain. You can basically say it's the same thing, it's chemically the same thing, just the way that the substance came about differs from what you know. And it worked with every already existing process, basically, which is, of course, also important. Whenever you sell a product and that it's not biotech or symbiote specific, you have to be able to justify switching costs because there's no problem that doesn't already have a solution. Just the solution that many people are using right now is shitty. And if you want to make them switch to your stuff, it just has to be easily implemented, basically, in their processes. But as I mentioned earlier, we don't have to stop there since biology is for many of these substances, the superior production method, we can further functionalize them and give them a value add and make it easier for people who work in a big company to to argue that they should be buying from you instead of from the guy who makes the petrochemical solution. So I think that there's a lot that we can do in terms of improving the performance or adding functionality.
0: I think that's really exciting to hear. You've also said that it could be used in a multitude of industries, apparel, textiles, medical. What are the beachhead markets that insempra is thinking about for solanus protein and carbocycles, lipids?
1: And for every startup, a smart approach is to go for the high margin, low volume market, which is I think necessary from also from a fundraising perspective and so on, and just to show early market traction because you don't have to scale insanely to show that you can actually make a profit. On the other hand, of course, this is not how we solve the the challenges of global heating, basically. We have to go bulk eventually. But we have to go step by step. So we focus on the cosmetics and personal care space simply because there you can have low volume ingredients that can be of very high quality and customers are open to pay for stuff that is good. We don't necessarily go out and expect everyone to pay a green premium. We believe that we shouldn't bank on that at all. That's basically more like a horse that we shove in while we sell an ingredient that has these extra functionalities. So personal care is one space. Then there are some applications in the food space for the lipids as well. And for Solina and these protein fibers, we go for high-end apparel. We already have a partner. I think it has been announced already, but I'm not entirely sure. So I'm not going to say the name, but a big luxury brand is interested in the technology and they give Solina a lot of input on what the properties of these fibers that they make are supposed to be.
0: What do you think about selling to large incumbent brands versus smaller, more startup brands, or even potentially vertically integrating with your own brand?
1: Let's maybe start with the last point. I believe, and I see that in the scene right now, that even if people sell ingredients, they still go all the way to the level of the final product. Please to just test it. And we do the same thing. So we have different creams and oils and stuff and different powders already made from our substances just to understand how do our ingredients interact within the whole comprehensive formulation or or recipe. It helps us to understand what's important when we develop products. And it's just a beautiful showcase. You can just show it to customers and you can rub that cream onto your hand and hey, this is smells good. It has all the qualities that I want. It's exciting. In terms of maybe eventually we will also vertically, fully vertically integrate, but it's not really what we want to do right now. We're a B2 product company. In terms of working with with customers, I see pros and cons for both camps. If you work with the incumbent, of course, you have to protect your stuff much better. They work slower, but they have the means They have the established value chain, logistics, whatnot. They can scale with you, with your production, basically. It's more fun to work with the startups. (laughs) They're much easier to get excited and they reply to your emails faster and they make sure whatever the NDAs and the material transfer agreements and all of that stuff is basically all done in time. So it it feels like more traction, but it's a little bit dangerous because in the long run, we have processes with inherent technology risk. These other startups have their own inherent risk. They also have to prove that they can find product market fit. So you fly the risk of both companies. If you go with a big player, then they don't have to prove their business model anymore. So you're more on the safe side, which can also feel nice.
0: I was laughing when you talked about startups respond to emails faster.
1: It's also about, yeah, trying things out and then being able to realize quite quickly what doesn't work and then move your resources somewhere else, I think startups who figured out how to do that are much more likely to succeed.
0: Hundred percent. How you think about costs over time and let them falling as you scale into larger markets for both the lipids and the and the proteins.
1: Initially, just costs will be high. We will start in more niche markets that are still big enough to make a profit, but then scale out to larger markets. And here's, of course, economies of scale, big topic. So once we go from 10,000 liters production volume to 100, 200,000 liters, you employ the same three people who sit there and organize everything, make sure everything goes according to plan. <clears throat> but you 10x or 20x your output basically so i think that is important and that is the biggest factor that we also really factor in my wish is that in the future uh, the current alternative will also have it less easy because right now we the price of carbon emissions isn't really reflected on the product or the cost of the product that we buy and that gives unsustainable products or manufacturing processes an unfair advantage. And I think it's long overdue that we get rid of that. This is more geared towards <clears throat> policymakers. It's just moving too slow, really. We certainly don't factor that in. I want to be clear about that because we don't know how long it's going to take. It will change eventually, but it might take decades. But certainly economies of scale is a point, getting a better understanding of what value looks like To your customers, once you started selling them one product, you understand maybe different other pain points, you can develop stuff for that and then really scale out and sell at a premium, not because you're green, but because you just have the better product. This is really how we also want to position in Sempra. It's not about only selling drop-in alternatives. We just want to make use of superior production means that we have with biology as the co-developer of our product.
0: Biology as co-developer and from green premium to premium premium. It's a premium because it's better. Yeah. I think AM Silk has largely used CMOs to scale up. How does Insemper think about CMOs versus trying to build some of that manufacturing
1: capacity in-house? Sure. We basically go up to a certain volume in-house in our bioprocess development. But it's an asset-light company. So we have the contacts and the access to those facilities. Also, thanks to the experienced team that we have. So we never really want to own a large-scale facility. One important point to make is that stainless steel is also something that in investors, certainly venture capital, doesn't necessarily want to finance. So as long as we can keep it at that light, uh, we certainly will go that way. It has its pros and cons. We believe that when you have good partners and you get the tech transfer right, then then that can be hugely beneficial. At the same time, we want to make sure that all of the <clears throat> development that is relevant in from a intellectual property perspective is in-house or as much of that as possible at least because that is simply where a lot of our value comes from clearly
0: when i think about at least a few of the biomaterials manufacturers and startups scaling startups here which have by and large taken a non-asset light approach right by and large have tried to fund their own manufacturing capacity and i'm generalizing here but i can think of perhaps a bolt or on the mycelium side ecovative of course fiber over in japan for special protein but then um in germany am still seems to have done that quite successfully you guys are also taking the asset like cmo approach
1: because i guess uh, our management has seen that it works <clears throat> but also i think an important point that you just touched on is that and and there are u.s companies where there's simply less of that legacy infrastructure that we have in europe so there's There are a lot of depreciated steel tanks in Europe that had been used up to whatever the 80s or so to make antibiotics and stuff so that these facilities still exist. They are old, obviously, but they can be retrofitted and they've been idle, because then everything basically moved to Eastern Asia, all of production, not only in the biologic space and anything really, and we can tap into these resources now, which is great. Having said that, we will most certainly run into an upscaling bottleneck if only a fraction of these cool companies, like us, obviously, Cambrian Formal, all of them, when they make it and they need large scale facilities then it's going to be difficult. We see this already, but I think in Europe, we're still okay, but it's going to get worse. So I'm always excited when I see announcements that their new initiatives to basically provide these facilities. I know this is then still four years down the line, probably from when you start to plan this to, to having your first run. Um, but yeah, we're getting there. So that is certainly exciting. And there's also new stuff that's being built not too far away from in Sempra's headquarters in Munich, we are hopeful that we will be able to produce at scale at any point of our product development.
0: That's exciting. And there are many challenges that a lot of folks talk about with fermentation capacity scale up. It's good to hear that at least things are potentially looking up whilst there's still being many challenges ahead. Let's talk a bit about Amino Collective, your role there, and also what's been surprising about the work there, if anything.
1: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It's been very surprising. I have a scientific background. I only dipped my toe into the financing world a couple of years ago, and I'm grateful that I can take part in this venture that is Amino Collective. That is the fund that Manuel Grossman built up, now fund number one. Hopefully soon there will be uh, the second fund. Manu is an entrepreneur himself, had a successful exit, and then just the usual way started angel investing very successfully and then started to raise a fund to do this on a larger scale it has a strong health tech, digital health focus and more and more over the past two years this is how long i'm working with manu and amino now we've been venturing into the thin bio and biomanufacturing space there are one or two interesting investments and some stuff in the pipeline certainly i find exciting my role is that of an we called it expert partner, where I give input on the science, but also interview the teams and so on, do some due diligence on the overall setup of the companies. It's just cool to see how many interesting, crazy ideas are out there. And to also see that slowly seeing companies founded by people that do not have this decade-long academic track record which just tells me that yes we're getting better at engineering biology and basically turning it from an engineering discipline into a design discipline just more inclusive and more people with good ideas can turn them into reality because it's always helpful if you have a technical co-founder but the tools are getting so good that I'm hopeful that in a couple of years from now, no one will need to get a PhD in order to have the depth of insight into a certain topics to build a company. And this is the process that I'm monitoring and through all of the interesting opportunities I see through Amino Collective, see that we're slowly getting there basically. And that's something that gets me excited. Plus getting exposed also to topics that I don't really deal with during my day job. Amino Collective is one of the the very first investors in a company called Molecule, and they are in the Web3 space and they make basically an IP NFT market space so that you can sell or trade bits of intellectual property to accelerate this entire tech transfer process. And that intuitively made so much sense to me coming from this scientific background and just seeing how tedious the process is and then seeing that this is something that can be solved with blockchain was very eye opening so i learned a lot and i hope i also bring a lot to the table and there's a lot of more cool stuff that's going to be announced through amino collective
0: Awesome. To help with funding mechanisms and the little I've looked into it, it is quite fascinating as an alternative to tech transfer. And uh, the tooling is getting so much better as well. I'm really excited about that too. And it's really reminiscent of what we've seen in hardware, in tech. And then now you don't have to roll your own servers. You have AWS. Now you don't even have to code. You can use no code, low code apps. It's really exciting for biology and symbio. Looking at the future and beyond in Sempra, What do you think biomaterials might enable in 15 years? And what are you most excited about?
1: What we already touched on is added functionality that current technologies cannot really achieve. That is hopefully the next three to five year goal. After that, really, I think the killer app, the thing that would be an absolute game changer would be to really utilize the concept of evolution. In biological product, it's the driving force of nature, really. It makes sure that everything is fit for purpose. Imagine you have that for your everyday household items and updates. the things that you use around you, they improve by itself. They get better at what they're supposed to be doing like an iPhone of synthetic biology, only that you don't have to buy a new one every year, but it it just improves in itself. And how would that change our economy? What happens if we don't have to um, get new stuff with super high frequency, including fashion and everything? There are concepts of self-healing cement, self-healing this and that, and we could really improve that even further and just have stuff that, that just adapt in terms of the functionalities of the product. I'm thinking a lot about how that would change economies If we didn't have to buy new stuff all the time, stuff improved, how would we think about nature? How would we think about diversity? Because obviously evolution and diversity are two very interlinked concepts and just what it would do with the minds of people, really. Short answer, turning evolution in in biomanufacturing and bio-based products from a bug into a feature.
0: As you were saying, iPhone update, I was thinking like bio over the air, updates but maybe you had something even more intrinsic to the material right in mind and it's not an OTA update it's it's an organic update that's constantly happening which yeah, is and pretty might, wild in sci-fi. Yeah, and
1: your bio iPhone might get a different update than mine because you use it differently. That kind of stuff is possible in evolution. So having something like that I don't have a very specific idea of how that would look like and it most certainly won't be an iPhone, but having a similar device that we just intuitively understand and know why it is useful, and then understand that it works powered by biology, I think that would be incredibly powerful.
0: Agreed. Where would you like help? Who do you want to hear from?
1: Oof! I am always looking for interesting new innovation and technology, early stage stuff, half ready thing in the biotech, the biomanufacturing space. I basically can quickly look at these opportunities and then funnel them into Insempra if it's a good fit for Insempra and if it's something that's more like a standalone thing and it's not really uh, something where Insempra can add a lot of value, then I can funnel that into Amino Collective. Or if it doesn't fit anywhere, I can (laughs) hook people up with other founders, with other investors. So I'm always happy to do that. I love building networks and just creating value by connecting the, the right people. If anyone has any cool technology, and they want to talk about it, want some input on it, or even want to work with a partner to to get that to the next level. Yeah. Super happy to do that.
0: Fantastic. Anything else we should have covered or any other parting words for listeners?
1: Try to understand evolution. Try to think in carbon stream. When you buy stuff, when you consume stuff, all of that has to be cycled back into a value chain or a value net. So I think that's very powerful to understand that every carbon atom that we wear on our body, that we ingest or use otherwise, will end up as carbon dioxide at some point, because it's just the most stable, most oxidized form of carbon. And we have to get that back into a form of substance that, again, is usable. And that makes for more conscious consumption, I think, and certainly one thing that we need to do in the meantime, because what's also clear is that technology will not be the sole savior. I think we can do our part, but we need um, individual responsibility and first and foremost, corporate responsibility and the right policies to be implemented.
0: How can listeners connect with you online
1: i'm most active on twitter and on linkedin so linkedin is just find me through my name on twitter it's at max Mund, but i didn't get the version with the u so i put an x instead so it's Max mxndt <laughs> this is where i'm most responsive and where i'm also super happy to connect
0: I'll add the links in the episode description. Max, thanks so much for coming on. This has been really fun and really appreciate your time.
1: So thank you for having me. And again, like kudos to the work that you're doing. I really love reading those blog articles and yeah, looking forward to the next one.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Materially better is a new podcast and I am a first time podcaster. So if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you left a rating on the Spotify or Apple podcast app or like and comment on YouTube. Also following the show and sharing this episode with a friend really helps as well. So thanks again and see you on the next one.